Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, gang. Have you ever uh, woken up in the morning and felt just a wave of dread sweeping up at you from your feet? Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat? Or maybe your dread is not so existential. You just have a mild dread about going to work on Monday morning or a looming dentist appointment. Today, we're going to explore the entire beautiful dread spectrum with a journalist who has taken a very deep dive on this very common and very uncomfortable emotion. What is dread exactly? What evolutionary purpose does it serve? And most importantly, how do we deal with it? What are the antidotes? Salim Rushimwala has worked for The New York Times, PBS, and also TED, where he hosts a podcast called Far Flung. He is also the host of the More Than a Feeling podcast, which is produced by 10% Happier. Salim and his team recently launched something called The Dread Project. It's an amazing title, and we actually shared the first episode of that series recently right here on this feed. It's a five-day series that investigates dread. Each day of the challenge, we give you tools to tackle dread in different ways. We're going to tell you how to sign up for the challenge at the end of this episode. And uh, if you want to do it right now, there's info in the show notes. Meanwhile, in this conversation, we talk about a lot of dread management techniques, including journaling and drawing and welcoming your dread to the party inside of your head. We also talk about how to face dread when it comes to climate change and when it comes to the biggie, death. I assure you, though, even though we're talking about a uh, deeply unappetizing subject, Salim does it in a way that is extremely fun and interesting. So we will get started with the mighty Salim Rushimwala right after this. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first... 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Salim Rashimwala, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here. It's great to meet you. I've listened to your voice so many times. I feel like I kind of know you. Yeah, you know, in the same kind of podcast network here, listening to each other's stuff is good to actually get the real Zoom connection happening between us. 
All right. So let me ask you an obvious first question, which is why and how did you get interested in dread? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's funny because when people are asking about the project, they're assuming that it's all darkness and doom and gloom. And there was an element of that in what started it. But we get really fun emails from our listeners on our show about all kinds of emotions. And in season one, I put a call out for folks to reach out with things they were interested in. And somebody wrote us with an email asking about dread. And it was this really poetic email from a listener named Braz who said that they remembered as a child waking up in the middle of the night with the feeling that they might fall between stars. And that was kind of their introduction to existential dread. And that kind of struck everyone on the podcast team. I personally have been interested in feelings of dread for a bit. Without going into specifics, a few years ago, my family was in a situation where we received some medical news and there wasn't really anything we could do about that. You know, you just know something's going to happen in the near future and it can feel a little paralyzing, you know? At the same time, we met some friends who had been in a, a similar situation and had figured out ways to find little pockets of joy, even though something real challenging was in their future. And that was intriguing to me. Like, what do you do in these situations where you feel almost paralyzed, right? Where you might have something really heavy weighing on you that you know is coming down the line or something you're afraid of. It would be silly to think that you can just make that all magically disappear or magically flip a switch on that and just, you know, have it all be sprinkles and happiness and all that. But we all got to get by in the face of things in the future that are increasingly within our sphere of knowledge, right? Like there's so many more places to get information about what be might be coming in the future that we got to adjust and we got to figure out ways to live life and be human and feel good, even with those tricky realities that either might happen or we know are going to happen in some cases. So you, you've got this sort of medical sword of Damocles hanging over your head and you're feeling dread as a result of that. And yet at the same time, confusingly, but also maybe helpfully, you're able to find, as you said, pockets of joy in the midst of it. Yeah. And a lot of it was once we heard how other people had been dealing with dread, dealing with things that they're worried about in the future. You know, you start seeing that, oh, there's more information that could be shared about how to get through stuff. When you are dealing with something by yourself, you can feel really isolated. A recurring theme that we found when we started talking to people about dread is this feeling of like a looping thought that's just like, hanging and and you're, you keep coming back to it. it's almost like a default thought is this worry sometimes you know and so how can you stop having that default thought and maybe maybe stop having is the wrong phrasing how can you introduce other thoughts how can you without trying to make something go away because dread can be useful dread's giving you information and alerting you to something being an important thing to wrestle with or deal with or think about or prepare for Everything from like these heavy things that we're kind of alluding to, to like lighter questions that are your like Sunday scaries about going to the office on Monday. Well, okay, that's Tony. There's something about the office that you can process and think about. So I just started getting really interested in what people were doing that was working in those situations. Because dread, I mean, it's universal, right? Like everyone's dreading something. And so whether it's like one specific big situation or, or a tiny thing, there's some similar things happening, we found, when we talked to people. So we chatted with the podcast team. They were really intrigued by this email that we'd gotten. It seemed like an area where we could start reaching out to experts. And that's what we did. And it's an area where even when you're reaching out to experts, everyone has a personal story. So it's not a thing where, you know, you've only felt dread, which we're kind of looking at as like fear plus time. These anxieties that are about something that's not immediately in front of you yet. Everyone, once you start talking about it, has some story related to that. And 
anytime there's something where people aren't talking about a problem or aren't talking about a feeling that they're having, but people are finding solutions, then it's good to share some of those solutions or tools. Again, I'm saying solutions. It's not about making something go away magically, but things that allow you to keep living your life. I like that definition, fear plus time. And you've also kind of usefully and helpfully taxonomized dread, and you reference this a little bit in what you just said, which is that there's existential dread, what's our role in the universe, how do we wrestle with our own mortality, and then there's, I don't want to go to work tomorrow, or I have a dentist appointment on the calendar, so it can, it really runs along a spectrum. Yeah, yeah, once you start getting into the feelings and talking about, like, how your body might be reacting to that. Once you start describing those things, you start finding all kinds of things that trigger that. And you kind of alluded right there to it being a spectrum. And it can run from everything from you're walking down the street and 200 meters away from you, you see somebody who, oh, you had an awkward encounter with and you've been dreading bumping into them for months to existential dread, which I think all of us, it's very human to have some kind of doubts or fear around death. And that spectrum holds so many things. You know, we we did a thing where we set up in a coffee shop and just filmed for a day friends and strangers coming through and talking about dread and hearing them list things out. You know, they mentioned soccer games, but it is a person who loves soccer. But it's like, even a thing you love, you could dread some element of it as you're like in the lead up. They mentioned work. Somebody mentioned first dates. But in almost anything, there could be some step of negative anticipation on that road, on that lead up. You on the show have some experts come on and talk about the utility of dread. And you referenced this a little bit earlier, but we've got a clip of these experts, or at least one of them talking about it. Can you tee up the clip? Yeah. So we talked to Dr. Ali Matu, who is a clinical psychologist He's an anxiety expert, and he just let us know that we shouldn't dismiss dread as just a negative thing to get rid of, that dread exists for a reason. And if you think about dread throughout the history of humankind, you didn't want to be a person who didn't anticipate things and didn't have some kind of feeling that something bad might be happening or approaching. That's where I think it's important to remember why we even have this emotion. Mm. In in so many ways, it's it's such a adaptive thing. The purpose of dread is not to paralyze you. The purpose of dread is to help prepare you, is to help you think about what might happen. It's to help you take actions that you can right now. Oh, interesting. A healthy amount of dread is needed to show up to work and to make a earthquake preparedness plan and and all of that kind of stuff. And that makes total sense. I mean, on the savannah in evolutionary times, if you were a dreadless human, you were probably about to be eaten by a predator. A hundred percent. And so many practical things. You know, you think of uh, an ominous sky as a phrase you hear sometimes. Like, if there's a storm brewing, it's okay to feel a little bit of anxiety around that and have that prompt you to take some action. That's a great thing. But again, the trick is how to, and this is the balance, how can we extract the good part of dread without letting it overwhelm us? And you very helpfully in this dread project that you've launched have a lot of practical advice, which brings me to another clip I'd like to get you to tee up, and this will start the practical section of this episode, which is the first piece of advice is journaling. Can you tee up this clip? So we spoke to Dr. Hala Alyan, who's a clinical psychologist, a writer, writes absolutely beautiful poetry, has been published in The New Yorker, and we chatted with her about journaling, which is one of those practices that I feel like many of us know are useful for things, but it's really hard to just keep going. I don't know if you've experimented with journaling, if you're a regular journaler, but even folks who are professionals in the media are often talking about wrestling with trying to write every day. She had a great note as someone who is literally a a published poet in the New Yorker, etc., has all these books 
that we can all be a little easier on ourselves when we're thinking about our own journaling practices. The biggest thing I can say is like, don't let the, what is it? Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. The thing that I often see happen around self-care practices that is so just counterintuitive and unfortunately, I think just discourages people from doing them is that there is an expectation and a really high standard that people attach to even their self-care practice. And that's a very quick way to make yourself miserable doing something that's ostensibly, hopefully making you feel better. Can you say more about the how-to aspect of journaling? Because I realize uh, now that we're having this conversation, we've never, never actually done an episode on journaling. So how would journaling help with dread and how do we journal? Great question. So the single biggest thing that writing does that people mentioned was get stuff out of your head, right? So even the act of putting something on paper can sometimes stop something from looping because you just wrote it down. Now it's down on a sheet of paper. Another benefit is that you can start getting it on paper outside of you and then it becomes this other thing that you can look at and think about in different ways, right? So now that it's not just something that's spinning in your head and and causing you anxiety and causing you frustration, you can look at it as a written idea and you might say, oh, shoot, that's not as serious as I thought is one possibility. If it is really serious, you might say, oh, the way I've been processing it isn't the most useful way to process this very serious thing. There might be an action you could take. When it comes to how to actually do it, Kala really stressed that you could do it with just a scrap of paper, a big pen. It didn't need to be some like super fancy, beautifully leather-bound journal I actually use this app <laughs> that you could Google the most dangerous writing prompt. And it is an, it's a website that as you type for 15 minutes is the setting I use. It will delete everything you've written if you <laughs> stop typing. And I know that's ridiculous to lean on. But for me, it helped me like figure out like, okay, cool. I'm going. I got to go for 15 minutes. I get it all out of my body, you know. So that thing of getting it out of your brain's any place other than your brain and working on it that way. Well, so that just kept coming up. It's good to know that we don't like to like light a candle and have an altar and the best possible notebook and a quill pen or whatever that we can just do it on a scrap of paper. It's also, I think you're putting your finger on something incredibly important here, which is getting the story out of your head. And there are many ways to do that that we're going to discuss. And the second way to do it that we are going to discuss right now, I hope, is drawing about dread. What's that all about? Sometimes you might not want to put something into words in a certain way. You might be hesitant. We talked to a clinical art therapist about this. Her name is Naomi Cohen-Thompson. She mentioned you can kind of create metaphors with drawing that you wouldn't actually encounter otherwise, perhaps. Like I drew with, with Naomi. I drew with Jeff Warren, who's a writer and meditation teacher. And while we were drawing each time, my dread came out completely different, completely absurd and childish each time. But it looked different every time I drew it. And it just made me realize like, oh, this is a really useful tool for seeing things with different metaphors. You mentioned Jeff Warren. He's a good bud of mine. We wrote a book together about meditation and he's been on the show a bunch of times. And I know you have a clip of him that I'd love to get you to tee up. And as I understand it, in this clip, he gives you a piece of advice that he has given me in the past <laughs> that I will say for me has been utterly transformative. So let me shut up and let you tee up Jeff. Yeah, you know, similar to you, like I'm constantly in conversations with people about this kind of stuff, but it's hard to actually let all different kinds of emotions in or all these different feelings happen that you might not always want to have happen. And he had this great metaphor for how to think about each feeling as it comes to the top of your mind. This idea of welcoming everything in your experience as a guest, it makes it kind of fun, you know. It's going to be a party in there. You know, sometimes <laughs> some parties are fun, some parties are going off the rails. Sometimes you really don't feel like you have the energy for another party season, but guess what? You don't always get to choose. So it's like, <laughs> uh, just taking that out breath and reaching down and like finding that inner resource that's going to allow you to open, you know, genuinely let all the characters be there. Uh, even if some of them are raiding your fridge and falling asleep on the couch and 
making a mess in the bathroom or whatever party guests do. I mean, this little mantra, I use it all the time. I'll be sitting in meditation and then, you know, the urge to plan a homicide or, <laughs> you know, whatever will come up in my mind. And it's like, all right, welcome to the party. I didn't invite this thought. It's just some ancient neurotic program trying to protect me unskillfully. And instead of fighting it, which, by the way, only makes it stronger, it's like shooting at the Hulk, you can welcome it to the party, which is not indulgence. It's just an acceptance, uh, patting it on the head gently, whatever visitor has come, and then you can move on in a saner fashion. Anyway, that's how I compute it. How do you compute it? What's fun about the specific example is I heard this example from Jeff just as we were doing a prompt that was like, draw your dread as a character. And Jeff <laughs> drew a character that was based on Judge Dredd. I don't know if you remember this. Like, oh, old yeah, school. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he drew well, a character old. based on... Jeff and I are both old, so <laughs> I, I will get all of his cultural references. <laughs> he drew a character based on that, and that immediately like framed the way that I thought of this idea of welcome to the party. And it was all these creatures just seeing these feelings as little beings that were in the room that were allowed to just vibe out. Didn't mean I had to elevate them to president of the party or anything like that, but just to let these creatures in and imagine them in the same space, just doing their thing. But that doesn't mean, you know, if someone rolls up to your party, it doesn't mean that they're in control of you. You know, it doesn't mean that they're leading the party, but they're just a guest. They're just in the space. They're just interacting. Yeah, and I think you can have affection. You know, I mean, this may just, I don't know, must maybe sound a little weird to people, but my principal demons are anger and selfishness. And if I'm looking carefully beneath the anger and the selfishness is this swirling undersea monster of fear. And... Fear is driving, I think, most of my inner activity. But that big undersea monster has this, you know, soft, opalescent underbelly, meaning that it, it has a positive intention, which is it's trying to protect you. And so you can welcome the dread or whatever obnoxious party guests are arriving in your mind, not only with, a, with gritted teeth, but with a sense of, yeah, thank you for your service. I'm going to take your gun away, though. <laughs> yeah, that's a way of reframing it. That's, you know, Naomi actually mentioned reframing when she described the, the activity. And we can listen to her words on that if you like. I would say reframing is often really helpful for people when you're allowed to kind of like almost take all of these different parts of how you're feeling and thinking about something. It allows us, I think, to root ourselves in what is being felt just in a new way, just in its newness. I think that it just shifts the way that someone is able to think through the same idea. I like this reframing, and I see how you're connecting it to Welcome to the Party. It's this cognitive shift of instead of having an aversive reaction to this very unpleasant feeling of dread, it's to see it in an entirely different way as trying to protect you. And all of a sudden, the monster is at least temporarily defanged. A hundred percent. And that's part of the benefit of this theme we keep coming back to of getting it out of your head. Because it's hard to reframe something that's just like stuck in your head, looping and looping and looping. It seems like the only thought that's there, right? But getting it out as a silly drawing or a character or a stick figure, then you can look at it and be like, oh, this is outside of me. Let me think about what other way I might view that. Stay tuned for more of my conversation with Salim, where we both try drawing our dread I'll admit to me, the whole drawing thing struck me as a, a little bit, um, I don't know, out there, but I'm actually convinced now. So you'll get to hear us do that. And we'll talk about perhaps the biggest, scariest source of dread, death. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. 
The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter, and you need that kitty litter to do the job which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control so your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs, and it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease let tidy care alert help keep an eye on your cat's health we're gonna do this drawing exercise and i would emphasize we're not trying to create art here we're just trying to create something so let's time how about two minutes draw your dread, I'll draw my dread, and then we will show each other our pictures and describe it to each other. Dear listener, as Salim and I do our drawings, we're not going to make you sit through two minutes of our terrible scrawlings, or at least my scrawlings will be terrible. We're going to fast forward right to the results. I don't want to rush the artist. Oh, shoot. But you know, if you don't rush it, sometimes it doesn't get done. Okay. (laughs) Well, I'm done. I'm done. Let's do it. Well, I'll start. Okay. Just reminding myself that we were going to do this activity in the moment just now made me realize that I was dreading something that I hadn't even realized I was dreading. I don't know if you can see this on the Zoom, but this is the back of a car. It requires some interpretation for me to explain this. I'm about to go on a trip, and I got a lot of work to do before the trip. I'm dreading packing for this trip, so the car itself, the boxes are beasts. And that's me, tiny on the side, trying to deal with a couple work problems falling from the sky at me as I get ready for this road trip. What you got? I am dreading, I have mentioned this on the show before, I have been experiencing an extremely destabilizing and inconvenient resurgence of claustrophobia. And it's been making elevators and airplanes really hard. And The treatment is to do exposure therapy. So you have to like go expose yourself to stuff you don't want to expose yourself to, like elevators and and airplanes. Actually, I was with a friend last night. Shout out to Corey. And she and I were going to an event. And the only way up to the event and down from the event was on an elevator. So she had to hold my hand. So here's my undersea leviathan of fear. He's got big, sharp teeth and a scary, slimy body. But the key point is right here. I wrote the word underbelly and put an arrow right up into this monster's gooey. I put one of my um, least favorite signs there, a heart right on the underbelly of the monster, because the truth is, I mean, fear, panic, anxiety is incredibly uncomfortable. And yet it is the organism trying to protect itself. And it's the brain computing danger where there is none. And yet the intention beneath all of it is, you know, barfing unicorn gooey. <laughs> it is really trying to help you out. It's just, it's just screwing it up. So, yeah, that's my drawing. The teeth on your drawing are terrifyingly large. <laughs> I, you know, one of the things that is helpful for me with this, you know, I'm looking at this drawing right now. 
I'm not actually going to get eaten alive by creatures while I'm packing this car. You know, it, it helps me sometimes see where my brain is overemphasizing something that maybe is not a life-threatening danger in this particular case, you know? Yes, yes. Okay, but there are dangers that are genuinely life-threatening, and we don't want to minimize that. So let's lighten the mood now and talk about death, because you do go there in a pretty robust way in the course of the dread project. So what did you learn about the dread of death? Yeah, we spoke with... Rachel Menzies, who's a clinical psychologist, an author, and a postdoc, who has written multiple books on death. And she spoke about the concept of memento mori, which you just mentioned, exposure to fear. This is kind of a similar thing. The idea that being exposed to death, remembering death, actually helps you and is actually more, it kind of normalizes something that's happening to all of us and is going to happen all around us. Avoiding thinking about death as humans who are mortal and are going to die is actually not really possible long term. We're going to be faced with a death around us. We're going to be faced with something that reminds us of our own mortality. So Rachel brought up some of the uh, different ways that even other cultures approach death that can be beneficial in a way. You know, for me, I spent a lot of time living in Japan. And one thing you'll see there, for example, is these little statues, sometimes by the side of the road, sometimes outside of temples, that are symbols of when someone's had a miscarriage or an infant death sometime. And that's something that, you know, recently is being talked about more in the U.S., but is often seen as kind of a taboo. And yeah, it's an example of a form of something related to death that having a ritual around or a visual symbol can be helpful with for a lot of people. Here's Rachel. One of the most helpful ways to do that is to start surrounding yourself with what's called memento mori, little symbolic or visual reminders to keep death at the forefront of your mind. These are things which are specifically trying to help you remember that time is finite and, you know, you've only got so much of it and and use it how you want to use it. I really see the wisdom for sure of Memento Mori. We've got uh, some Mexican handicrafts around the house that I picked up when I was doing some reporting in Mexico that are skulls, which it's a big motif in Mexican art. And as I get older, I've noticed that a very prominent Memento Mori is called the mirror, because every time I look in the mirror, I'm like, oh man, uh, that dude's old. And (laughs) it reminds me, I was watching TikTok the other day, and there was some kid interviewing people on the street, and he interviewed an older guy, and the guy said he was 67, and the kid said, what's it like to be 67? The guy said, every day I wake up, and it feels like I played a game of tackle football yesterday. And I walk around, and I'm sore all the time. And then at some point during the day, I look in the mirror. And I actually think that's a really healthy way to go because death is non-negotiable. And so what do you want to do? Spend as much time, you know, whistling past the graveyard and trying to avert your eyes from the abyss? Or do you want to get comfortable with this thing that is coming down the pike at all of us? Yeah. You know, I know you spent a lot of time investigating certain aspects of this. It's surprising how folks who have regular contact with death are not necessarily dark, sad beings, right? You know, I want to be careful and not make light of like the real challenges of things like, for example, during COVID, the the ways that healthcare workers had to suddenly be surrounding it in a way that was felt very out of their control for a lot of situations and things like that. But there's people who are able to approach it with intentionality because of either their careers or their belief systems. We had a conversation with a death doula named Elua Arthur. And, you know, when our producer reached out to her, she wrote back and was like, this is going to be fun, which is... (laughs) You know, a pretty surprising (laughs) response to, are you up for talking about dread of death? But she's been around it so regularly and built so many rituals about it that she sees it as a thing that teaches her about life. 
I don't know how much time I have. I want to take time to look at the hummingbirds in awe and listen to my niece laugh and look into the eyes of my beloved and feel loved. When we're talking about death, we're bringing our entire lives into focus. Talking about death to me is one of the most enlivening things. It reminds me that I'm still very present. I'm still very much here. Now, how can I fill up all the edges of this very limited time I have here? I love this idea of thinking of life as a container to fill to the edges. Brim. Make it bubble over. How do you actually get to that mindset, though? I'm not sure what happened, but I do know Mm. that I've seen a lot of it. I've been with a lot of sick people, dying people, people right after they've died. And to consider a body that once was animated with a spark of life, now just an empty vessel of tissue and bones with no life inside of it. To think that this person will make no new memories, they won't speak any more words, they won't walk anywhere ever again. Like the profound stillness in a dead body is something that is jarring. When I, when I see that there is a finite end to life, then it encourages me to be here in it for as long as I've got it. Yes, it's coming. But until that day, I'm going to live. I'm going to live. That was one of those interviews where there's a line that just sticks with you and loops in the best way possible. And that line of her saying, brim, make it bubble over, Mm. talking about kind of the cup of life. She's not saying at all that death isn't sad and that it won't involve sadness and that, you know, she's not denying permission to be sad and grieve. But noting, I think, that someone in a job like hers often ends up reminded of life and of its shortness. And, you know, in almost every tradition, whether tradition that talks about a hereafter or not, we're reminded that our time on earth is relatively short in a lot of ways. And the idea of just trying to pack it as full of joy and connection as possible, I mean, that one just hung with me. I totally agree. And I just had a bunch of responses to listening to that clip. One is that people don't want to look at death. They feel it's morbid or whatever, but it actually is morbid, but in the best possible way. And Alua Arthur is walking proof of the fact that looking at this forbidden truth is extremely, extremely helpful. It's enlivening. It reminds you of what's important. And that's why that brings us back to memento mori, the reminder of death, because we are programmed for denial. We are programmed to get caught up in stupid shit. And so having as many reminders, whether it's your mirror or some Mexican skulls or a stone you carry in your pocket or a meditation practice or volunteering in a hospice or whatever it is to remind you that this, that pregame is over. This is all zipping past, and it's now literally or never, I think that's incredibly important, the reminding part of it. The other thing I was going to say is that this is an interesting coincidence. I was in the same room with Alua Arthur last night. The The event I referenced where I, my friend Corey had to hold my hand was a premiere of a TV show that's by the time this episode is posted, will be airing on Disney Plus, starring Chris Hemsworth, who's best known as uh, Thor. And the TV show is called Limitless, and Chris tests his limits in all sorts of ways. And the final episode is is about death, and uh, it features Alua Arthur, who then came on and did a little Q&A with the audience, and she's just extraordinary. And the final thing I was going to say after listening to that clip, and this is just supportive of the argument that people who are around, and you, you made this argument earlier, people who are around death are often counterintuitively quite lively. I made a really close friend, this guy, Ronnie Getter, who was sent to a hospice where I was volunteering. He was sent there. It was told he had a couple days to live. He ended up living for five years in this hospice and to the point where they actually sent him home. He ended up dying after a year of being at home with his sister, Ernestine. And anyway, one day I used to hang out with Ronnie a lot. And I just remember one day I bought him some hot wings. He liked hot wings. And 
he turned to me, he was eating them, and he said, this shit is spicy. It'll remind you that you're alive. <laughs> and that line has never left me. And this guy, Ron, he was living in a hospice. His neighbors were dying all the time, and he was one of the most lively, alive people I've ever met because he didn't take anything for granted. Okay, so that, that's just a vomiting up of responses to that great quote. But I do have a question for you. You've mentioned it so far in this interview that in the West, we have a way of sort of quarantining deaths. We don't have to see it. The sick go to hospitals and then we rush them off to funeral homes where we put makeup on them and make them look better than they did often when they were alive. And so there's a way in which we're, we're protected from the reality of this. And you come from two distinct cultures and the cultures in, through which you've moved one is often required sometimes to wash bodies. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, in the, in the Islamic tradition, it's not unusual to be called to help wash the body of a, a relative. And it's something that, it's a process that I've been involved in. It's definitely, man, I mean, you want to talk about something that makes you really aware that it's real. You know, there's no... When you're that close to someone you know well and you're you're literally touching their body, you can't pretend that death hasn't occurred, you know? There's no more literal way to face it that I can think of, right? And in that tradition, it's treated as something that's very good for a person to do, to be a part of that practice of assisting. And, you know, I think it's something that after being involved in that process really did make me think a lot about how distant death is in daily life and how it's really happening. We're just not seeing it. Of course, it's not that it's not happening to everyone in the West. It's obviously happening to everyone, but it is far away. And when it's not far away, you can't help but think about your own life after that and think about what you want to do with your day, your year, if you're lucky, your decade, if you're lucky. It's a really challenging question, of course, like how to think about the time you have. And, you know, you'd act differently if you have 10 seconds. You'd immediately call a loved one, maybe, or differently if you have a year, differently if you have 10 years. So I'm not saying it generates like an automatic magic plan, but it, it definitely causes a kind of attentiveness, if that makes sense. Because immediately afterwards for myself, and I can't speak to other folks, the world around me was suddenly very, very present. And I was very, you see things in a different way. And that sounds kind of cliche, but sometimes cliches are just true. Yeah, well, cliches achieve their status by being true. That's right, yeah. So I'm curious, having had this experience, has it had any impact on your personal dread levels vis-a-vis -vis death? That's a great question. I haven't thought of it as something that shifted the way I think about dread, but almost by definition, something that shifts your attention or shifts the way you perceive the world around you shifts how much time you might spend in a looping thought about death. Does that make sense? So here I'm not speaking as... I'm not the most culturally knowledgeable person about my own traditions, you know, all the time. Like all of us, the, the things that we're raised in are sometimes our defaults, right? But for me, anything that makes me spend a different part of the pie chart of our life, of our days, feeling more attentive to the people around us, that's taking me out of a, a state of mind where I'm being paralyzed by dread. You know, and that for me is a real value that's come from experiences like that. Just seeing your family differently, your living family differently after something like that. It didn't make me feel more fear, which again, I'm just speaking of my own case, was kind of surprising. And that, that was a recurring theme in, in folks we talked to as well, that being more connected to things surrounding what you dread, connected as opposed to just gaining information, right? Being more connected, even if it would seem like it would make you think more about that thing or dread something related to that thing that you're now connected to, for whatever reason, didn't seem to cause that. It caused people to feel 
more human. Like it's not necessarily that it makes you cheerful. That's not necessarily the the immediate outcome, but something about feeling more human makes you less scared in some ways, in some cases, or at least makes you more able to be with the people you're with and take action with the people you're with and interact with the people you're with in a very present way. Yeah, I hear a couple things there. One is that having had a real intimate exposure to death, you shift your focus in your day-to-day life toward like what's actually happening right now and being grateful for the time you have. And that can't but reduce the ratio of stuck in dread time. And then the other thing I heard you say, and this is a bit of a projection on my part, is that it's a kind of exposure therapy, just like I have to do with my claustrophobia. Riding elevators with my wife, which I now I'm slightly embarrassed to admit I do, to get comfortable with it, it reduces the fear. I've got to approach the thing I'm scared of. And so washing a dead body can have a similar effect. Yeah. And, you know, I would emphasize too that different people will have different reactions to that experience. You know, so some folks might, you could imagine, for example, becoming more connected to the idea of the hereafter after an experience like that. But that also causes you to move through the day differently and causes you to pay different kinds of attention. So that's the recurring theme for me with those kind of exposures is that they do change how you see the world and the way you move through it. And anything that makes you take positive action or connect with community takes you out of that paralysis and the negative side of fear sometimes that can happen when a thought's just looping and looping and looping. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And after the break, Salim and I are going to talk about another common source of dread, eco-dread, or the dread of the climate crisis. We're also going to hear some listener responses from folks who have already done the Dread Project, and we'll get a sneak peek at the rest of the season on More Than a Feeling. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. They showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&M's, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash happier. Let's talk about... One last aspect here of dread that you explore in the course of the dread project, and that is eco-dread or fear of impending climate disaster. I mean, impending might even not be the right word since it's already here in, in many ways. But what did you learn on this score? So I actually took a field trip for this one. I went to 
the Gwadis Canal in Brooklyn. The canal is infamously polluted, and there's a lot of jokes about the Gowanus Canal, and it's a super fun site, which means the government's like, this is bad enough that we're going to spend a lot of money cleaning it up. It is not at all a place I would think to help one's thinking about eco-dread. It seems like one a spot that would make one terrified, perhaps. But I got a chance to talk to Aurelia Casey, who's a nature educator. She's a youth program manager at the Gowanus Canal Conservancy, founder of Inner City Ranger. She does all these activities where she encourages people to find positive aspects of nature. She talked about how connecting with nature and observing nature can take you out of just this like barrage of negative information into something that feels good. Observing nature feels good. And that connecting to people who are working in nature can move you towards action. So I got to sit on a park bench next to her and I'll let you see what she described. If you take a moment and you realize how hilly a place is, uh, you take a moment and sort of look at the rocks and figure out how old they might be. Um, You look at the trees and how broad they are, how tall they are. I also would encourage people to just look up what indigenous people used to occupy, the space that they now live upon, the Lenny Lenape people, um, the Canarsie people further down in Brooklyn, right? What it looks like here for them. We now live on this land. We now use it for multiple different things, but still our trees are still here and they still manage to survive. The birds still migrate here yearly. You'll see new insects, you'll see insects that are native here. And then most importantly, you see people interacting, right? People are just walking through the space to get home or to get to their next destination, or this is their destination. So that's where we are. That's the Gowanus Canal to me. I don't mind it. I think it's cool. It's quirky. So let me see if I can restate this. The argument seems to be that connecting with nature while it won't necessarily fend off the climate crisis does give you a certain grounding and sanity and calm that will allow you to navigate whatever comes more skillfully. Yeah, you know, one of the people we talked to about dread in general was Dr. Ali Matu, who's a clinical psychologist, creator of the show called The Psych Show. He said this in kind of a light way He was saying that often we think of the opposite of dread as being hope, but sometimes he thinks of the opposite of dread as being action. And just feeling more connected to nature helps you be aware of what's around you locally, right? So one of the things that Aurelia pointed to was, hey, you can right where you are at this very moment, learn something about the land around you. Learn who historically the stewards of that land were. Try and, and research. With, without too much work, you can find out what the land used to look like before it was covered in buildings. Now you can kind of be connected to the nature that actually is around you. You can take some pleasure in it, right? So taking pleasure in nature rather than just being afraid of the loss of it. And you need to get to some kind of baseline before you can take action. If you're just like totally freaked out about climate change and reading negative tweets about climate change all the time, again, that can come back to that thing we keep coming back to of paralysis. And connecting to local nature is a step towards connecting to local activists around nature and just actual action that you can take. And, you know, we talked to a somatic therapist named Patty Adams, who had a really simple tip. And it was, anytime you need to find nature, look for a sunset. Because almost no matter where you are, there's going to be natural beauty at the end of each day. And so if you're feeling disconnected, if you're feeling like nature is just a thing that you're fearing losing, but not something you're getting any pleasure from in your life, just stepping outside at sunset. Even if you're in the city, you're going to see some natural beauty there, taking that moment, recentering there, and having that first step to get you out of that loop of nature just being something 
that you're afraid of losing. I think it makes a lot of sense. Agency is an antidote to dread. Yes. Can apply to nature, but also our politics, you know, just volunteering locally to help your community, just merely voting. All of this falls into the category of agency as an antidote to dread. Before I let you go, I'd love to hear what kind of feedback you're getting on the Dread Challenge. Oh, the feedback's been amazing. We've had it be really interactive. We even had a local event here in my city in Durham where we had some of the folks that we've interviewed come and meet each other. And over the course of doing these five challenges, we got a lot of voice memos. Our first clip's from a listener named Rachel. Hi, I'm Rachel and I live in England. And I've just joined the Dread project, which I just love the title of it. It just makes me laugh. And it's so nice hearing other people talk about their dread because sometimes it just feels as though it's just you and everyone else is living this extremely fulfilling and happy and joyous life. And it's just you dreading, barreling towards death and (laughs) etc so it's so nice to normalize it and I'm also a psychologist and I think that there's this very strange idea that I have and other people have that because I'm a psychologist that I don't experience these very strong feelings and I absolutely do because I am just a humanoid like everybody else so thanks it is not just her. It's not just you. It's just not, it's not just me barreling towards existential dread. So that was a recurring theme is people just feel good hearing each other talk about it. You know, we also got people who shared what they drew. Since you mentioned nostalgia for certain time periods, here's another. Hi, this is Diana from Durham, North Carolina. My drawing of dread is informed by day one's exercise of writing to dread, where I sort of discovered that my dread is there supposedly to protect me. So my drawing is kind of like that big giant marshmallow man from Ghostbusters, but kind of fuzzy and maniacal. And he's holding me supporting me in his arms, but constantly poking me with uh, lightning bolts and getting me to freak out. So that's how I see my dread. Thanks. I love the idea of a fuzzy marshmallow man being the thing that is terrifying someone. We've also had people get pretty creative. We had someone who made an entire text exchange between them and dread. Jennifer Markovitz from Ontario, Canada. Today I sent a text to dread. I said, I've been meaning to ask, what is it that you want from me? And Dredd replied, I want you to feel suffering. To suffer is to be human. I serve to remind you. Seems cruel, I replied. I know I am human. I suffer. What's the point in reminding me of something I know and feel? Dredd replied, ever notice I come visit when you're feeling blessed? I want to balance things, and you make it easy for me to do just that. Will you always visit, I asked. And Dredd replied, that is up to you. I mean, that's they're just writing theater for us. That's how deeply they're engaging, and it. it's been wonderful to see. So a lot of people listening to this might be now suddenly quite intrigued. However, the challenge is over. Can people join now? Oh, 100%. You can actually go to dreadproject.com and you can get an email every day that will tell you for five days what the prompt for the day is. We're still here. We're at Podfeelings on Twitter. But these activities are useful anytime that you could take a moment with them. And, you know, I want to keep emphasizing the thing we brought up. It's not about every tool being a step-by-step exact thing that's going to magically cure every listener of Dread. But it's a collection of tools that you can use to approach Dread and that you can try out and see which ones help you out and how they help you out. And I want to say that if you want to go listen to the episodes, you should go over to the More Than a Feeling podcast and we'll put the links in the show notes for sure. 
Speaking of more than a feeling, the show, you've got some other non-dread episodes coming up, and I just want to give you a chance to play a few clips so that we can get folks intrigued and over onto your podcast feed. One of the episodes is about one of my favorite topics. Favorite probably isn't the right word, (laughs) but it's just, let's just say, resonant topic, unfortunately for me, grudges. If somebody says the word grudge, you immediately want to hear the story behind it, right? Like, it's such an intriguing thing. And we got to talk to the author of a book called How to Hold a Grudge. That's Sophie Hanna. And we also talked to Matthew Hepburn, who is a friend of yours as well, and a meditation teacher, and had a wonderful description of what it's like to hold a grudge. There is kind of a like deliciousness in holding a grudge, like a sword in your lap that you just sharpen, you know, aimlessly. But usually they don't really feel good. It's like the sword's in our lap, not in somebody else's lap. So every once in a while, you you try and adjust postures and you nick your leg. (laughs) Which is a brutal description. So true. Totally true. You're also doing an episode on forgiveness. Tell me about that. Yeah, one of our reporters, Yasmin Khan, has been friends with a woman who works in what might be called violence interruption. She goes by Coco and is on the ground in Brooklyn just every day working in the community. And even though she's in what might seem like extreme situations, she's got a lot of concrete takeaways on how to use empathy anytime the stakes feel really high. You have to understand that when someone dies and and, and someone goes through a tragedy like that, on both sides, whether it's the perpetrator, whether it's the victim, everyone is hurt, right? Everyone is hurt, no matter what. They all feel hurt. So you have to understand that hurt and you have to respect that hurt. It sounds like you've got some incredible episodes coming up. And let me just say, with regard to the aforementioned Yasmin Khan, who's the reporter on the episode about forgiveness Yasmin also hosted a podcast called Childproof. At this point, not producing new episodes, but there are a ton of her initial episodes, which are really a great listen and lots of good advice for anybody who is rearing children right now. So we'll put links to Yasmin's show in there as well. So to you, Salim, I want to say thank you. Great job on this Dread Project, you and, and your whole team. Before I let you go, I just want to check in, though. Is there anything that you wanted to say that I didn't give you an opportunity to say? Mainly just that this project is an exploration. And as the person doing the exploring, it's been such a good reminder that there are tools that can help us feel better in all kinds of situations and that we can learn from each other, even if All the tools don't work all the time, even if we are an intermittent journaler, even if we have to voice memo instead of getting uh, a pen and paper, even if we've never drawn, that experimenting with things that have helped other people really helps me move through life and helps me. And I'm super grateful to everyone who's shared the way they've been dealing with dread with us. Amen. Again, great job on this project and a great job in this interview. Thanks for coming on, Celine. Thank you so much. It's been a joy to talk about it with you. Oddly, yes, it's been a joy to talk about Dread. <laughs> so thanks again. Thanks again to Salim. Great to hear what they're up to over on More Than a Feeling. You can find this special Dread Project miniseries with five days of challenges for working with Dread over on the More Than a Feeling podcast feed. If you want to make it official and get five days of emails, that uh, walk you through the challenge. You can sign up anytime at dreadproject.com and be sure to check out the rest of the season of More Than a Feeling for more episodes that explore even more emotions. You can get all of that wherever you get your podcasts. Before I go, I just want to thank everybody who worked so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, and Lauren Smith. We had some very special help for this episode from the great Kim Baikama. Our supervising producer is Marissa Schneiderman. Kimmy Regler is our managing producer. And our executive producer is Jen Poyant. We get our scoring and mixing from Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Wednesday for a brand new episode from my old friend, extraordinary human being, Zen priest, Koshin Paley Ellison, who's going to talk about many ways to do your life better.
If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.